This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. My name is Jane McAdam and I'm the director of the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law here at UNSW Sydney. And it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome all of you to our 2018 annual conference. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Bedigal people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. 2018 will go down in history as a significant one for the protection of refugees and migrants, at least on paper. The adoption next month of two new instruments on the movement of people, the Global Compact on Refugees, and the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration signals new moral and political undertakings by the world's governments. These instruments promise to respect the human rights of people on the move, to provide the conditions for them to live in safety and with dignity, and to empower them to enrich the societies in which they live. Such undertakings reaffirm the essence of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights which was adopted 70 years ago. However, in the current global political environment, commitments such as these could not be taken for granted. Indeed, 2018 was also the year that saw the ongoing but escalating exodus of Venezuelans fleeing for a combination of economic, social, political and humanitarian reasons. Algeria deported thousands of migrants to inhuman conditions, often without examining their legal status or individual circumstances. Hungary enacted unprecedented legislation allowing the imprisonment of anyone assisting undocumented migrants, refugees or people seeking asylum. In traumatic scenes, the United States separated over 2,000 children from their parents as they sought to enter from Mexico. Later, the US confronted asylum seekers at the border with more troops than it had deployed fighting ISIS in Syria. Meanwhile, Italy closed its ports to boats rescuing people seeking asylum and migrants from the Mediterranean. While some refugees on Nauru and Manus Island clocked up more than five years, stuck in limbo as part of Australia's offshore processing policy. As UNHCR's Assistant High Commissioner for Protection, Volker Turk, told the world's governments this year, we are facing a watershed moment where two sets of values have emerged in two distinct modes of discourse. It's difficult to reconcile how the positive developments of the past year have occurred alongside the seemingly endless volley of assaults on refugees. This backdrop makes it all the more remarkable that any new agreements were reached at all let alone ones that reinforce the importance of existing international legal principles and that recognise the positive contributions of refugees and migrants to our societies. It is, of course, lamentable that a number of countries, including Hungary, Austria, Israel, Poland, and two countries built on immigration, the United States and Australia, have indicated that they won't participate in the Migration Compact. Their myopic and inward-looking response panders to xenophobia rather than to the obvious need to manage migration in a cooperative and orderly manner. 
The global compacts on refugees and on migration are intended to enhance international cooperation on human mobility, albeit within a framework that does expressly recognise the primary responsibility and sovereignty of states. These instruments grew out of the 2016 New York Declaration for Refugees and Migrants, in which governments expressed profound solidarity with people forced to flee, reaffirmed their obligations to respect the human rights of refugees and migrants, pledged support to assist countries affected by large movements of people, and underlined the centrality of international cooperation to the refugee protection regime, as well as the burdens that large movements of refugees place on national resources, especially for developing countries. The Refugee Compact focuses on enhancing more predictable and equitable responsibility sharing when it comes to large-scale refugee movements and protracted situations. It seeks to prevent displacement where possible, to respond more effectively when people are displaced, and to find solutions, durable solutions, for people who need protection, including by supporting conditions for return and by expanding access to resettlement and other complementary protection pathways. In the Compact's own words, it represents the political will and ambition of the international community as a whole for strengthened cooperation and solidarity with refugees and affected host countries. UNHCR believes that the Refugee Compact marks an evolution in governance of refugee protection with the potential to make a real difference in the lives of refugees and the communities that host them. If it can do this, it will be a game changer. Whereas the Migration Compact was drafted by states themselves, the drafting of the Refugee Compact was led by UNHCR. But of course, it was still constrained by what states would allow it to do. UNHCR was therefore involved in a, a very delicate balancing act in discerning where it could push and where it couldn't. As Volker Turk, the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection explained, it was a question of strategy and a conscious decision not to put up for discussion what is already part of international law and policy. And he said that's why you do see a fairly cautious approach on that in the compact. In that sense then, the Refugee Compact was building on a long-standing body of international law, not starting from scratch. By contrast, the Migration Compact is in many ways the beginning for the global regulation of migration, offering, as it says, a 360-degree vision. While it also draws on existing human rights principles, it's the first time that the world has adopted a comprehensive agreement on migration generally. It's therefore framed as a milestone in the history of the global dialogue and international cooperation on migration. That compact aims to foster international cooperation among a variety of actors, and it acknowledges that no state can address migration alone. It too seeks to build consensus on principles and practices to improve the management of migration and the rights of migrants. It calls for migration policies that are based on data and evidence and points to the need to minimise the structural and other drivers that force people to leave their homes in the first place. It affirms the importance of saving lives and of establishing coordinated international efforts on missing migrants to strengthen the trans transnational response to people smuggling and trafficking as well. The compact underscores the need to manage borders in an integrated, secure and coordinated fashion, 
ensuring that migrants have proof of legal identity and adequate documentation, and that there are appropriate screening mechanisms in place in order to ascertain their identity and their protection needs. It addresses the importance of cooperation in the return and readmission of people who don't need international protection or who don't have any other legal basis to remain. It affirms that migrants should not be discriminated against and that they should be able to access basic services and have decent work conditions. It also encourages the use of flexible pathways for migration and recommends the mutual recognition of skills and qualifications. Importantly, both compacts contain concrete frameworks for action to which states can, states can be held to account, at least politically, through new formal review mechanisms. So for the refugee compact, there will be a global refugee forum every four years, beginning next year, which will be held at the ministerial level to announce concrete pledges and contributions towards the refugee compact's objectives and to consider other ways to enhance responsibility sharing. In the interim, every two years, there will be a high-level officials meeting, and there will also be new indicators to measure success towards the achievement of the compact's objectives. Progress on the implementation of the Migration Compact will be discussed in a four-yearly International Migration Review Forum from 2022 onwards. There will also be a UN network on migration to work to ensure effective and coherent system-wide support to implementation, follow-up and review of the compact. At least on paper, these are all positive steps. Their practical effect will take much longer to ascertain, however. Neither compact is a treaty, neither compact imposes any new international obligations. So the big question then is whether states will give effect to these compacts so that they can generate real change on the ground. As the Migration Compact acknowledges, our success rests on the mutual trust, determination and solidarity of states to fulfil the objectives and commitments contained in the compact. And it is with this sense of common purpose that we take this historic step, fully aware that the Migration Compact is a milestone, but not the end of our efforts. What does all this mean then for Australia, both on the international stage and at home? During the drafting of the Global Compacts, Australia was an engaged and often a constructive contributor. It took an active role in the process, which is why its withdrawal from the Migration Compact is somewhat surprising and very unfortunate. Our Prime Minister, Home Affairs Minister and Foreign Affairs Minister are simply wrong when they say that the Migration Compact fails to adequately distinguish between people who enter Australia illegally and those who come the right way, particularly with respect to the provision of welfare and other benefits. The Compact doesn't do anything of the sort. Likewise, the Home Affairs Home Affairs Minister's concern that the Migration Compact would give Australian courts grounds to undermine the government's policy and let more refugees stay in Australia is a total red herring. The Migration Compact isn't about refugees at all, and it's not an instrument that would bind Australian courts either. Not even international treaties can be invoked directly in Australian courts, so a non-legally binding instrument like the Migration Compact would have even less influence in this way. 
While the refugee compact is focused on large-scale and protracted refugee situations, which Australia's never experienced, Australia can play an important role in providing support to host countries and durable solutions for refugees. We have history as our leader in this regard. Our partnerships in humanitarian assistance, development, technical and financial support are crucial, as is our commitment to ongoing and enhanced resettlement. We also have an important opportunity to ramp up alternative pathways to admission, including family reunification, private and community sponsorship schemes, educational scholarships, labour mobility opportunities for refugees, and special emergency humanitarian intakes, which is the subject of a new Caldor Centre policy brief, which will be released in early December. In particular, Australia should leverage the existing goodwill of many in our private sector to improve and expand a community sponsorship model, learning lessons and effective practices from the 40-year-old Canadian scheme. As the Canadian Immigration Minister told us here when he spoke at UNSW earlier in the year, in Canada, this program has been transformative, not just for the refugees themselves, but also for the sponsors in the community. He said, although legally people are only required to sponsor an individual refugee for one year, the relationships that they form usually last much longer than that. Again, although legally the sponsors are only obliged to take care of them, we found that their neighbours and friends also take part in that experience and embrace these refugees. Refugees are no longer an abstract concept. They are real people who become essentially part of their family. He said his predecessor used to say that he was the only immigration minister in the whole world that couldn't bring enough refugees to satisfy the Canadian demand for refugee sponsorship. In Australia though, 2018 hasn't seen many improvements for refugees and people seeking asylum. We have witnessed the steady, if not accelerating, deterioration of the mental and physical health of people held on Nauru and Manus Island, which has been described by experts as worse than they have seen in any war zone or refugee camp around the world. Even the head, former head of Australia's border force, Roman Quadbleg, remarked on this. He described sites as reminiscent of the worst slums he'd ever seen with unsettling signs of the volatility of an incarcerated population and the omnipresent but indefinable sense of dread and foreboding. In October, three government MPs called for the urgent removal of refugee children and their families from Nauru, thanks in large part to the tireless advocacy of many of you in this room. In the past few months, almost 100 children have been removed, transferred to Australia, and around 17 now remain there. Many in Australia are now living in detention centres or hospitals or under guard in hotels. The Refugee Council of Australia has expressed concern that some families have been separated as a result of the transfer process, with people left on Nauru or put into different detention centres or different parts of Australia. There are still no resettlement options available to these people at the moment, and the Australian government has even indicated it might send them back to Nauru at some point. This is no solution at all. Within Australia, far fewer asylum seekers are now held in mandatory detention than just a few years ago, which is of course a positive thing. But we can't look at that in isolation. 
It's a result of the combined policies of boat turnbacks, offshore processing, and the denial of resettlement in Australia. Things that themselves are inconsistent with what international law demands. The 300 odd men who are detained have been in detention on average now for two years, some for more than seven years. Many are unwell and face severe psychological distress. Life for the 30,000 asylum seekers in our community is not that rosy either. In August, the government made significant cuts to social support, with about 60% of asylum seekers losing their benefits of $250 a week, losing casework support and access to torture and trauma services. This is even if they don't have a job or any other way of supporting themselves. According to the Refugee Council, such cuts are likely to leave thousands of people destitute, hungry and homeless. In the United Kingdom, similar actions that resulted in asylum seekers becoming destitute were found to constitute inhuman and degrading treatment, contrary to international human rights law. We all know that it doesn't have to be like this, and it shouldn't be like this. When the Canadian Immigration Minister talked to us earlier this year about people seeking asylum in his country, he said, lucky for us, we have held firm on the notion that we can both apply Canadian law to make sure that we respect Canadian law and process everyone fairly and equally, and to make sure that we can protect the safety and security of Canadians, while at the same time staying true to our commitment to the Refugee Convention and other international commitments that Canada's signed up to, to make sure that people fleeing persecution and who claim asylum in our country at least have the opportunity to be given a fair hearing so that they can make their case. If they are then able to establish in front of an independent body that they deserve refugee protection, they get to stay. In Australia, we've moved far away from this position in political rhetoric, in law, and in practice. Let's reimagine how it could be with a bit of leadership, commitment, and follow through. Here's what we need to do. We need to return to complying with our international legal obligations and ensuring that they are fully reflected in domestic law. We need to provide reception conditions that give people seeking asylum access to medical care, to work, to education, and other assistance that will enable them to live in dignity in the community, pending the determination of their protection claims. We need to provide a fair, efficient and transparent system for processing asylum claims with well-trained decision makers, harking back to the days when our system was held up as a model of best practice. We need to create safe and legal pathways to protection while also addressing the root causes of displacement. We need to respect the principles of family unity and the best interests of the child, recognising that mutual support among family members is critical to people's resilience, including their integration and success in new communities. We need to invest in settlement and integration, which requires a commitment to education, to training, st skills transfer and recognition of qualifications and the promotion of business partnerships to facilitate employment opportunities for refugees. These things are key steps in paving the way for long-term success for all of us by investing in refugees as people 
and by enabling them to acquire the skills and resilience to contribute to our communities, whether those communities are here in Australia, back in the country of origin, or somewhere else in the world. As UNHCR's Assistant High Commissioner for Protection reminded the world's governments this year, human dignity must be front and centre when it comes to refugee protection. Dignity, he said, is central to the progressive development and implementation of law and standards for refugee protection. And it's the antidote to dehumanisation, which prevents us from seeing the other as a human being with rights, needs and dignity and desensitises and numbs our conscience, enabling easy slippage into mistreatment and policies of cruelty because it prevents empathy and compassion from shaping our response. Just as to deny one person's dignity is ultimately to deny our own, he said, the responsibility to ensure one person's dignity is the responsibility of us all. Since 1945, Australia has played a key role in providing protection opportunities for refugees, both by resettling people in need from overseas and for many years by enabling people seeking asylum here to apply and be granted protection. Refugees have helped to make this country what it is today. The success of earlier programs like post-war nation-building labour schemes, which gave displaced people from Europe the chance of a new life, means that Australia can have confidence in the positive contributions that refugees will make when offered opportunity and hope. Providing a welcome, secure and respectful environment for refugees results in benefits for everyone and in a stronger, more socially cohesive country. As the Canadian Immigration Minister has pointed out, talent is more mobile than ever. Investment is more mobile than ever. People want to go where they're accepted and included. Surely Australia has the confidence and the ability to see this vision realised once again. Finally, 2018 marks the Caldor Centre's fifth birthday. I am honoured to have had the opportunity to establish and, and lead such a committed and capable team of people. It, in fact, it is our people who make the centre what it is. And I would like to thank our researchers, Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill, Dr Claire Higgins, Dr Sangeetha Pillay and Madeleine Gleeson, as well as our professional team of Frances Voon, Kelly Newell and Lauren Martin for their outstanding work and collegiality. I would also like to thank UNSW, the law faculty and of course Andrew and Renata Caldor, without whom the centre simply wouldn't exist. And I'd of course like to thank all of you for your ongoing support in so many ways. And really finally, I would like to wish all of our American visitors a very happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>